Well, we turn now to God's Word. We are uh, continuing uh, today our study through the Gospel of John. We're in uh, John uh, chapter 15, and uh, I'm going to actually read one verse before what you have printed in your bulletin there. I'm going to start in verse 17, and then you can pick up following along uh, when I get to verse 18. Uh, These are the words of Jesus. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now... They have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we are gathered here uh, hungry, longing to, to meet with you and to hear from you, to hear from our Savior. We are so grateful that here are recorded the words of our Lord and uh, so carefully spoken in the spirit, um, the spirit of truth. And we're thankful that we have a truth that we can study with our minds. And we pray that these words would strengthen, encourage, comfort, challenge us. And so uh, we need you to be our teacher. And, um, and so we open our, our hearts and our minds to you now. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, the words that uh, we just read here from John 15 uh, were spoken by Jesus uh, the night before he would be crucified. And he says to his disciples there in verse 20, you saw that, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's saying to them, "What, uh, what happens to me tomorrow when I'm crucified is going to happen to you as well. Actually, church, uh, church history tells us that of Jesus' 12 apostles, uh, 11 of them 
were eventually martyred. Uh, Apostle John was the only one who, it said, uh, lived, you know, died a natural death. And actually the Apostle Paul, in his final letter in 2 Timothy, is writing, writing to Timothy, the, the, the pastor that he was passing his ministry on to, uh, before his, he was, uh, his head was cut off by the order of uh, the Emperor Nero, the Apostle Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus' words have proven true in every century uh, for the last uh, 2,000 years. They're true in our day. And actually, the last century has been the, by far the bloodiest of uh, Christian persecution and Christian martyrdom in, 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 in history. And there's a ministry called Open Doors Ministry that maintains a watch list about persecuted Christians in the world, and I'll be using some of their data throughout this sermon. But uh, they say that 340 million Christians around the world live in areas of high persecution. That's like the, that's the population of the United States of America. That is the number of Christians around the world that are living under high persecution. And even Wikipedia acknowledges that freedom of religion remains the most persistently violated human right in the annals of the species. And despite disputes and difficulties with numbers, there are indicators, such as the Danish National Research Database, that Christians are, as of 2019, the most persecuted religious group in the world. Persecution is a massive global issue, and I think it's often not on our radar as American Christians because of the relative, uh, relatively large amount of religious freedom we enjoy. Um, but I think that the Bible clearly says that we, sh- we need to be aware of persecution, ready to help uh, support our brothers and sisters who are suffering from oppression around the world, and we as Christians must be ready to endure and persevere through persecution ourselves. And you might ask, well, is, do we face persecution as, as Christians living in the U.S.? And uh, that's a complicated question. It's certainly softer persecution here, but it still can be in, insidious. You know, we have Christians who still are in positions of power in, in our nation, but if you go to most university campuses, Christians and Christian thought are definitely marginalized. I mean, pretty much every idea is welcome on a, on a university campus except for one, that the Bible is the Word of God, is the one <laughs> that you will... Uh, Uh, be despised for believing. And so at the very least, we can say that Christians are gradually losing influence in American culture. And so how should we as Christians feel about that? Well, Jesus prepares his disciples for persecution with these words and tells them what he hopes they'll take away from this passage. This is what he wants them to learn from this passage. Look at chapter 16 there, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. That's what his goal is, is that we would not fall away when the persecution comes. Or again in verse 4, he says that last verse there, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And so I think basically Jesus thinks we should not be surprised at persecution uh, when it comes, and we should resolve to persevere and remain faithful through it whenever it comes. And so today, I want to uh, help us understand uh, persecution and where it comes from by looking at two points from this passage this morning. This is what they are. That persecution comes from the world, 
and persecution comes from preaching the gospel. Two truths from this passage. Persecution comes from the world, and persecution comes from preaching the gospel. And my hope is that we would be a church community that is prepared to remain faithful, whatever God might uh, bring that we might have to face. Okay, so two points this morning. The first is this. Persecution comes from the world. And you'll see that Jesus says there in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. What does Jesus mean by the world? He says the world's going to hate us. Well, it's not the earth. The world is not the earth or the universe. The earth isn't going to hate us. The universe isn't going to hate us. The way the word world is used in many places in the Bible is the system or the structures of human culture that work in opposition to God and his kingdom. So it is the structures of human culture that work in opposition to God and his kingdom. And the, the world, the Bible says, is ruled by the evil one. Actually, just a few chapters back in chapter 13, Jesus said, uh, or no, sorry, in the last chapter, I will no longer uh, talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He's talking about the evil one as the ruler of this world. And so what are the, those structures that are used by the evil one to persecute God's people? Well, uh, there are three that I want to point out from this passage. Families, religions, and governments. There are three structures that are used by the evil one to persecute Christians, families, religions, and, uh, and governments. I want to talk about each of these. So first, persecution comes through families. And uh, maybe uh, some of you have experienced that, a persecution from your family. You became, maybe you became a Christian and you experienced m- maybe full rejection from your family or just being mocked or despised or criticized for being a Christian. Well, in verse 19, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that little phrase, love you as its own, there's probably no group that tends to have claim on us as you are one of ours, like a family or like a tribe or a clan, a, you know, the extended, extended family. And uh, um, in around the world, your life, would be tied uh, with not just your immediate family, but the whole clan or tribe. And, you know, we live in a a very individualistic culture. And many of the movies that we watch and celebrate are about people breaking away from their family and going against what the demands of their family were. Um, But even here, being rejected by by your family as a Christian could be totally devastating. But around the world, if you are shunned or disowned by your family, the consequences could be absolutely dire for you. I mean, you're dependent on your family to live. And that's why it's no small deal when Jesus says uh, to his disciples in Matthew 10, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The gospel, he recognizes that the gospel sets families against each other because people have to decide between their family and between Jesus. So, for example, I was reading about in Libya, Christians from Muslim backgrounds face extremely violent and intense persecution, constantly pressured by their families and the wider community to renounce their faith. It's a huge part of being a Christian around the world. But what that also means, the example from Libya means that persecution from families is tied to another social structure, 
that is used for oppression, not just a family, but also that persecution comes from other religions. Persecution comes from other religions. And of the, the top 10 most dangerous places to live in the world as a Christian, Islamic oppression is, is the source of persecution in eight of them. Uh, Nigeria, for example. Nigeria is basically about half, uh, half Muslim, half Christian. Um, but every, on average, 10 Christians are murdered a day in, in Nigeria uh, because of their faith. And largely from groups like Boko Haram, which are you know, uh, jihadist groups. And, uh, and in this passage, Jesus points out that people will persecute Christians because of their religious convictions and zeal. You see that there in verse 2, chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's absolutely true in our world today. And it's not just Islamic countries. Uh, you know, India is, is one of the places where there's the most severe uh, persecution, both of Christians and Muslims, by uh, Hindu uh, nationalists. There's very dangerous in many places to be a Christian in, in uh, India. And, and, you know, and of course, throughout church history, Christians have persecuted each other. You know, different denominations have brought persecutions for people uh, following Christ. Um, and so some of the most violent persecution is religiously motivated. And what's chilling about this kind of persecution is it's people feel justified because they think they're serving God in doing it. But I'll tell you, it is amazing to hear the pastors talk from some of these regions like Nigeria or Iran, and they say things like, in the midst of persecution, churches are growing more. Through the persecution, God is making the church grow. We do not pray that God will take away the hardship, but that God should give us the grace to be able to stand. It's an incredible statement. Would we think that way? Would we talk that way if persecution came? Well, that's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples here. I tell you these things so that you won't fall away, so that you have the grace to stand. And so the world has these structures that the evil one uses, families, clans, extended family, tribes, and then also, uh, you know, other uh, religions that oppose Christianity. Uh, they put a tremendous amount of pressure on those who follow Christ. But probably the most powerful of the world's systems is, is third, that persecution comes through governments. And as you read about the most severe persecution around the world, it comes through oppressive governments. For example, North Korea. North Korea, there's estimated 300,000 Christians in North Korea. And if Christians are discovered, not only are they deported to labor camps as political criminals or even killed on the spot, their families will share their fate as well. So if you become a Christian, you're putting not just yourself in danger, your family in danger. Or in China, uh, the government is, has installed face, facial recognition cameras in, in the churches. So when you walk in, the government knows that you're going to church and they're going to harass you uh, for your loyalty to Christ. Uh, the BBC had an article just two years ago that said that persecution in many places was reaching the level of genocide where Christianity would be completely wiped out of certain regions. Governments are the tool, one of the chief tools of the evil one. Jesus was crucified by a governor. You read the book of Acts about the early disciples. The apostle Paul is 
being, uh, constantly being arrested. And he's standing before uh, governors and, and uh, you know, making a case for Christ. And so as Christians, the Bible says, there will be a conflict between the disciples of Jesus and the rulers of the world. And we have to recognize this reality is all over the Bible. And I know that, you know, uh, this past year, our church has had to think about our relationship uh, to the government has placed restrictions on our on our worship. And I recognize that COVID is a very complicated, unique uh, situation, but it's really shocking to think about how many churches in the last year have not been meeting. And, uh, you know, to have the worship of God shut down, I mean, in many places around the world. And so how as Christians should we think about the relationship of the church to the government? I just want to make two comments about that. First, the church must stand its ground in asserting its God-given authority with respect to the government. The church must stand its ground in asserting its God-given authority with respect to the government. And the authority given to the church is in the matters of faith and worship. Um, the, our, the Westminster Confession, which uh, some of you know is the doctrinal standard of our church, it was written in the 1640s by a group of uh, British and, uh, pastors who were writing to Parliament and saying to Parliament, this is what the church believes. This is the doctrine of the church. This is our role and this is our authority. And in, in chapter 31, the Westminster Confession says it belongs to synods and councils. So, for example, our church has a council called the Session. It's the elders who, who govern our church. It belongs to councils ministerial, ministerially to determine matters of faith and cases of conscience to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of public worship of God and the government of the church, if consonant to the word of God. And so the ordering of worship belongs to the councils of the church and not to the civil government. And some of you will know that uh, our church's worship practices during COVID don't perfectly align with the guidelines of the state. And it's because, of course, we take into consideration the guidelines of the state. But the authority to govern the worship service, God's worship service, has been given to the elders of the church. We have to keep that straight. We hope that <laughs> the government also, that governments keep that straight. And Abraham Kuyper, who's a favorite theologian of mine, he's a Dutch theologian from about 150 years ago, he puts it this way. Even if the magistrate is not a confessor of the truth, the church must insist that its public legal position be acknowledged. And so we have to be active insisting that the authority of the church is recognized. So the church must stand its ground in asserting its God-given authority with respect to the governments. I, I think that should be paired with a second comment that I want to make about our particular situation, is that we must thank God when our religious liberties are upheld. And uh, we enjoy a tremendous amount of religious liberty in this country, and this is a huge source of hope to Christians around the world. And over the, uh, the past 10 years, there's been a whole string of religious liberty cases that have gone to the Supreme Court. And over, as far as I know, all of them have gone in favor of religious liberty. It's, religious liberty has been stable. And uh, the most recent was the ruling by the Supreme Court of the Roman Catholic Church in the synagogues in Brooklyn that had tighter restrictions put on them than, than other you know, businesses and things. And the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of the synagogues and the churches. Um, and so it's going to be hard to it's it's going to be hard for us to love our neighbors, 
is if we say that we're being persecuted when we're not. And so I think that both of these truths, we have to understand our important role that governments, uh, there is a, uh, um, res- uh, a conflict between the disciples of Jesus and governments, and we should thank God for the, for the liberties we have. So what is persecution? Persecution is the hatred of the world that comes through the social structures, particularly the family, religions, and the government. And so how does a church maintain its faithful resistance against these structures of the world? How do we be faithful to God in the midst of a world that hates him? Well, that is our second point. So first, persecution comes from the world. Second, persecution comes from preaching the gospel. Persecution in the church should come from preaching the gospel. And the only reason we should be persecuted is because of the gospel. You see that Jesus says that there in verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. There is no other reason for the persecution except that they don't like Jesus. And so let me highlight three ways that Jesus says we need to preach the gospel in this passage. Okay, first... We preach the gospel by loving one another. Verse 17 says, the, uh, verse 17 is the verse before the passage that's in your bulletin. It says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so there's this contrast between the hatred of the world. In the world, there's all this animosity, all this fighting, all this anger with one another. But among the disciples of Jesus, the mark is love. He says, that should be the mark of my people. And it's crucial that we do not join in the hate of the world. Jesus says, we love our enemies. Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. So we don't join in the the animosity. And we should all recognize that some Christians complain of persecution that is not persecution. If you're a jerk to people and you're arrogant about being a Christian and people don't like you for that, that is not persecution. That's just the consequences of being foolish or being sinful. That's, that, we should be marked by love. And uh, over and over, the Bible says that whenever we share our faith, it should be sweetened by the grace of Jesus. Colossians 4 says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Or 1 Peter 3 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Above all, the greatest testimony to the world filled with animosity is our love for each other that then spills over into our love for our neighbors that are outside, okay? Now, some of you might hear that and say, well, you know, how can we go on loving people in a world that rejects God, that rejects the gospel, that is corrupting our culture? Don't we need to fight? It's not just love. We need to fight. We do need to fight, but we need to fight the way that God calls us to fight. And so that's the second thing is we preach. So we preach the gospel by loving one another. Second, we preach the gospel by clearly speaking the word of God. We preach the gospel by clearly speaking the word of God. And Jesus says persecution is tied to speaking the truth. Look at verse 16, 26. I mean, when, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now what this means is there is a holy war 
happening in the world. But Christians do not fight the holy war with weapons and bloodshed and anger and intimidation. We fight the war through worship and a clear proclamation of the word of God. That's what our resistance is. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, how he describes his warfare. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says the way that he wages war is with words, by speaking. It's not through anger and weapons and intimidation. It's just by speaking the word of God plainly. And this is one of the reasons that at our church, we just preach right through books of the Bible. We always teach the word of God. We need to speak the word of God. We're going to explain the word of God. And the way we wage spiritual battle against the forces of darkness is by worshiping together. And uh, we don't have too many kids here, but what I'm going to tell the kids in the other services is when Pastor Nate's old and, you know, retired or dead, and there's a new pastor here, and they're the men and women and the moms and dads in the church leading this church. They need to insist our pastors are teaching the word of God. That's what they should hear. Are we being taught God's word? Because that is the battle that the churches fight. And I don't think that we should be pessimistic about that. It's not only that the world will hate us and persecute us. There are going to be people who see the love of Jesus and hear the word of God and they believe in it. You know, I love what Jesus says in, in verse 20, the end of verse 20 there. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus says, there were some people who heard what I said, and it was like their hearts just soared into heaven, and they realized there's a God of love in this world, and it's just changed my life. And he says, that transformative power that my words have, your words are going to have that same power in people's lives. So we preach the gospel by loving each other, by clearly speaking the word of God. But the third thing is this, that we preach the gospel by telling people what Jesus has done in our lives. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus says, you're going to go tell people what you've experienced with me walking with you in your life. And it's interesting, the word for bear witness, the Greek word, martyreo, it's where we get the word martyr. And throughout history, bringing the good news of grace to the world has been tied up with being persecuted by the world. They've always gone together. To bear witness and to be a martyr, we're, the, we're one. And the reason for that is that at the center of our faith is the Son of God himself who came to a world at war with God. He came to offer forgiveness and love and redemption and grace. And the world murdered him. And yet he rose from the dead and he continues to extend his hand to the angry world to come, give up your anger, receive my love, and be changed. And all we are as a people are those who have simply accepted that love. And so you cannot live a life centered on the gospel without persecution. A servant is not above his master. 
We must not fear or dread that. Persecution will come from the world, from our families and friends and tribes and clan, from the people who believe different things that we do, even from the governing authorities. And our calling is to remain faithful and to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel in our love for each other that spills over to our neighbors, to preach the gospel clearly by speaking the word of God in worship, but above all, by rejoicing in all that Jesus has done for us and saying, no matter what comes, I will never let go of him because he will never let go of me. Let's pray together.